Well, good morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reform. I want to dismiss our children for Children's Church. As they go, I'll just uh, spend a moment to uh, orient you to a first chapter of a new book. If you turn with me to page six, you'll see that our, our reading today, a scripture reading, the, for the, the sermon is from the book of Nehemiah chapter one. This covers the entirety of what is a short chapter. We uh, just completed a, a sermon series uh, leading up to Easter in which we reflected on some of the great passages of the Bible that teach about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection and all that it means for us. And as we turn to the summer, we're going to enter into a book that we'll move with through the, throughout the summer. Um, this book is a, a, a history book from the Old Testament. Um, and it's, it's really the history book that covers the, uh, the last section of history in the Old Testament. After uh, the book of Nehemiah, there'll be a period of silence. Uh, there'll be a, a period of about a, a 450 years or so that uh, we don't hear a lot about what's happening. And then uh, we will see God uh, uh, bursting onto the scene again in the person of Jesus Christ uh, about, you know, over 400 years after this. As a result, there'll be things happening in this book um, that will sort of set the stage. We'll see the beginnings of movements um, that will set the stage for what will happen uh, when Jesus arrives. And, and some of the, the things going on here will um, sort of be uh, previews of what's to come. But what we're encountering here as we read the book of Nehemiah is a story of uh, God's people that are living after the exile. This is a, a period of the history of Israel called the post-exile or the post-exilic period. It's a period where uh, the, the former glory of Israel is behind them. And they're trying to find their place in a world that's uh, confusing and often threatening. I think there'll be many ways in which we can relate to the experience of God's people as they live in the, this post-exilic uh, setting. Let me read the passage and then uh, we'll affirm together it's the word of the Lord. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these things, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, the he of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place where I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer of the king. This is the word of the Lord. The experience of uh, Israel in this setting was the experience of what we call post-exile. They had come back from their exile in Babylon. In many ways, they were living in the shadow of a former glory. You have in your bulletin a, a little insert that gives an outline of the sermon, help you to follow along. But on the back of it today um, is the beginning of a new sermon series. We have a special present for you. It's a, a very brief overview of a timeline of the history of of Israel. Uh, these are the sort of presents pastors give. You can have sympathy for my children on their birthdays, uh, um, but it's an exciting present for me. If you were look, to look at that, I'd just sort of summarize it this way. You can see three periods in the history of Israel and what we call the Old Testament. The, the Hebrew scriptures would cover three periods of time. The first would be foundational, beginning with the call of Abraham, the patriarchs, their uh, captivity and Egypt and their early years in the promised land under the judges. We would say these are formational periods for the people of Israel. And then, beginning with King Saul, David, and Solomon, and the, and the divided kingdom that followed, we have a period of the monarchy. And parts of this, particularly under David and Solomon, might be really the pinnacle of the experience of Israel, the, the greatest power and influence they had. Some of the great songs uh, were written during this period of time. And then uh, continuing with that in the monarchy and the divided kingdom, we see a, a, a gradual declension. God's people turn away from faithfulness. And first the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. And later, as the Babylonian Empire rises and controls the ancient Near East, it's Babylon that conquers the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem and brings them into captivity. There's an interlude for a period of roughly 70 years where the people of Judah are in captivity in Babylon. The book of Daniel covers this period of time. They learn to live as exiles in a foreign land. But then in 539, God begins to act in ways that no one probably could have predicted, though the prophets told them no human would have predicted. Uh, the Mede and Persian Empire rises to the forefront, captures Babylon rapidly, and with a new plan of ruling their empire, the leader of the Persian Empire decides to send the conquered peoples back to their home territory. Their, their plan of empire ruling was to establish people in their home regions to give them uh, free reign to establish their cultural practices and worship the religion of their own people. The belief of the Persians was this will be an easier way to rule the empire. Send the people back, let them live as they want, use their own culture and religious practices to have unity, and just keep taxing them. The deal of the Persians was as long as you pay taxes, you can do quite a bit of what you want. In fact, the Bible tells us 
that the leader of the Persians actually gave money and resources on several occasions to help Israel rebuild their temple and reestablish themselves. And yet, all is not well. Even now, after the return from exile, it's painfully apparent that Israel is living in the shadow of its former glory. We see that Hananiah, when we meet, I'm sorry, Nehemiah, when we meet him, is living in Susa. Susa is the northern capital city. It's the city where uh, the leaders of uh, the Persian Empire go in the winter. Uh, it's a winter month in, of Chislev. And Nehemiah has a position of prominence and importance. He's a cupbearer to the king. We'll talk more about that next week as we see what, what uh, all that entails. Uh, but it's an important position. He was the one to make sure the king didn't get poisoned with his cup. And as such, he had access to the king. It's believed by many scholars that the cupbearer to the king may have started as merely guarding the cup and tasting it first. But it came to have a, a great deal more power than that in some settings. Anyway, uh, Han, uh, Nehemiah, when we meet him, is quite a far way away from Jerusalem. But he receives a, a brother, perhaps it's a biological brother, perhaps he means just a kinsman. Nehemiah is Jewish. The, the term Jewish begins to appear in the Bible during this period, during the post-exile period. It, it roughly refers to the people of Judah who had gone into captivity in Babylon and returned. And so we see in this passage one of the first references to the Jews. They are God's people now having returned to the promised land, trying to live faithfully. Though Nehemiah is living in Susa, in the capital city, he's a, a leader and uh, has an important role in the Persian Empire, his heart is with his people. And so when this relative comes, he asks, how are my people doing? We see this when we look uh, at verse uh, 26. It says, I, I asked Hananiah, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So the, the first scene of the book of Jeremiah, of, <laughs> it's been a, a long couple of weeks, <laughs> I'm mixing my names up, <laughs> Nehemiah, <laughs> um, uh, the first scene of Nehemiah is Nehemiah in Susa asking about Jerusalem, and the news is bad. What he's told is that the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The news is not good. It's likely Nehemiah, like many people living in exile and in dispersion throughout the empire, would have had great hopes. Ninety years earlier, when the Persian Empire took over and the first group of exiles returned, great hopes that perhaps God was fully restoring Jerusalem. But life post-exile has not been what they had hoped for. It's been a, a severe disappointment. The walls are broken down and the, the gates are burned with fire. That means that the city of Jerusalem is quite vulnerable. They're vulnerable to their neighbors. They're vulnerable to uh, oppressive powers around them. And the glory of the city is a mere shadow of what it was once before. I'd like to do three things as we look at the passage today. I'd like to think, first of all, about how our story can relate to this. In what ways might the experience of Israel post-exile 
this period of time in which Nehemiah is writing, in what ways do we find we connect with it? Secondly, and thirdly, we'll see two responses from Nehemiah. First of all, he grieved. Secondly, he prayed. So first of all, how do we connect with it? What does it live, what's it like to live in the shadow of a former glory? Three years ago, uh, my family and I uh, had sabbatical for a couple of months, and we spent a majority of the time in Athens working with uh, refugees. Living in Athens was living among a people who lived in the shadow of their former glory. Those were the stories of many of the people we met who had fled violence in Afghanistan and the Middle East. They would tell you of the cities that they lived in. In some cases, the very cities that we would be talking about as we read some of these places. Uh, People who came from modern-day Iran, perhaps even from the modern city connected with Susa. But the Greek people themselves were a people that lived in the shadow of a former glory, both figuratively and even literally. In the city of Athens, there is a great mountain in the center of the city, and on the top of it is uh, what, what they call the Acropolis. It has the famous, uh, the famous pictures of uh, Athens you may have seen before. In the center of the citadel, on the top of this plateau in Athens, is the Parthenon people of Greece today live in the shadow of a, of a structure that was built 2,400 years ago or more. And as you walk around the city and meet the people that live there today, you encounter folks whose best times were behind them. Life is difficult in Greece today. They're a modern nation in many ways, but one of the more difficult places to live in the EU And there are people that just don't feel like they control their own destiny. Tourists come from all over the world to see their former glory. But the glory of modern day Greece is diminished and weak. There are people that feel often hopeless, helpless, and living on a memory. I wonder if we relate to that. In many ways, right now, in, in a civil sense, uh, America is a country that many would say is at the peak of its glory. We have still great national prominence. The economy's good. We have advanced medical technology. If we compare the, our situation right now with people in human history and throughout the world today, we could tick off the things we don't have. We don't have great economic concern. We don't have any plagues or health concerns that are, that are weighing over us. We don't have fear of an invasion. In many ways, there is a, a bright sheen on American life. But many Americans are aware that just below the surface, there are grave concerns. We, we live in a day of uh, deeply divided and polarized political discourse. People uh, no longer seem to have a a central understanding of what it means to be American, who we are. We're dividing into smaller camps that argue bitterly with each other and struggle to find any sort of common ground. The one thing perhaps many people can agree on, whether you were to go to the, the, the left or to the right, people have concerns about the direction that we're heading. Different types of concerns about different things. But it's very common in America today for people to have fear and concern for the future. Our our concerns are are not unfounded. Beneath the glittering gold surface, there are deep and profound problems. 
problems that we see as a country and we're not sure what to do about. We have concerns about wealth distribution and the mobility of lower and middle class people. We see a breakdown of family structures that portend poorly for the future. We've seen recently, in recent years, an unmasking of problems that had laid beneath the surface but were covered. An unmasking of uh, patterns of sexual assault, child molestation in many of our various institutions in our country. The opioid epidemic is raging, and many of you may know Western PA is a region particularly hard hit. Depression and suicide are up. I recently read an article online on the KDKA website that said hospitalization for suicide concern and suicide attempts among youth has doubled from 500,000 to 1 million in the last eight years. Beneath the glittering surface, there are concerns. And while perhaps an outside observer looking in wouldn't say of America that the walls are broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire, many of us recognize there are real concerns. And depending on where you live, the prosperity of America is not evenly displaced. You might find this to be true of your community in very visible ways. I grew up in central Pennsylvania in a small, what we would call, Rust Belt town. My family moved there in 1980, and every single year afterwards, the little town has gotten a little smaller and a little worse. Every year, the graduating class shrinks. Every year, another business leaves. Like many small towns and parts of America, a way of life is being lost. Pittsburgh, in many ways, was that on a big scale, but parts of the city, the part we live in in Oakland, has rebounded strongly. Technology is growing. High-end jobs are evident and can be found. Uh, the tech sector, the medical sector, the university sector, the parts that many of us connect with are rebounding and growing. If you were to take a short trip up the river, or perhaps to some of the surrounding neighborhoods, you would find places that have not rebounded. The various post-steel towns along the Monongahela River, many of them lie in rusty ruins. Last night in our uh, support dinner for the Bethany Baptist Summer Youth Program, we reflected uh, briefly on the, the challenges of this, the neighborhood of Homewood. A neighborhood not far from here, but a neighborhood that's not rebounded. A neighborhood that struggles with profound problems. And problems we wouldn't necessarily need to see. The walls are broken. And the gates are destroyed by fire. We can say that of our civil institutions, but as we read the book of Nehemiah, we'll be challenged to remember that the Israel we're learning about here, the, the Jewish people who've returned to Jerusalem, are God's covenant people before Christ. And as such, they're not just a civil group, it's not just a city as we know a city today, but it is a covenant people. You see the language of covenant in this passage, we're reminded that it's not just a civil reality, but a spiritual reality. While there are connections between Jew Jerusalem of uh, 24, 2500 uh, years ago, there are also to our, our city and our region, there's also connections 
between Jerusalem and the church. In reality, they're the stronger connections. The reason Jerusalem was so important is it was the place where God's temple was present. It was the place where God made himself known to his people. For Jerusalem to be in ruins was a picture of a ruined and damaged spiritual reality. It was a couple decades before Nehemiah's time, the temple had been rebuilt under the leadership of Ezra and under the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah. They had rebuilt the temple, but the surrounding structure is weak and the glory is dim compared with what went before it. I just pause for a moment and ask you to think about the glory of our church, the church in the West, in America. While there may be a glimmering gold surface on some of our cultural realities, I think honesty would require us to say that the experience of being the church is one of a diminished glory. The American church in particular seems to be teetering on the edge of irrelevance. While our particular denomination continues to hold steady with members, perhaps even growing slightly in the past couple of years, the American church as a whole is clearly shrinking. Many of our evangelical and uh, historic Christian institutions struggling to adjust to new time periods, struggling with viability. Many Christian leaders you would talk to say they're uncertain and concerned about the future and have lost confidence in how to speak powerfully to a rapidly changing culture. I think if you were to ask your Christian friends and neighbors what they think, many of them would speak of this concern of a a glory that perhaps is diminished with what went before it. A time where Christian voices often seem irrelevant or perhaps banished to the outer regions of our public discourse. It's a reality that very, is very close to the heart of uh, many Christians today. And I think we see a connection with Nehemiah's concern. I just say in passing that you may, if you're not immediately uh, drawn to either of those two analogies, may find connections to your own life here. Perhaps you are at a time and a season in your life where the reality of your situations is not matching up to what you expected just a couple of years or perhaps a couple of semesters ago. Perhaps the dreams you came to Pittsburgh with are not going to be fulfilled personally the way you hoped for, whether it's civic or spiritual or personal. For the next couple of months, we're going to be living with Nehemiah in this post-exilic period, a period of diminished glory, but a period in which The power of God is still present. I want to turn our attention to Nehemiah's response. How did Nehemiah respond to this bad report? Well, the passage tells us that he did two things. Looking in, uh, beginning in in verse 5, or sorry, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah said, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The two things we'll look at in Nehemiah's response are his weeping and his praying. We'll start with his weeping. Nehemiah didn't avoid the problems, but he recognized them for what they were. He, in fact, he responded 
wholeheartedly to the situation of his people. It says that he, that he not only wept and mourned, but he did it for days. He fasted to show his seriousness. And when he begins to pray, we see references that he had prayed repeatedly over a period of time. Nehemiah grasps the depth and the realities of his problems, and he didn't turn from them. I want to pause there for a moment because it's not immediately obvious that Nehemiah would have responded this way. As we read the story, we might take it for granted that here's someone who really cares about his people. But if we remember the opening setting, he's not living in Jerusalem. There's a lot of reasons why Nehemiah could have turned his face away from these problems. The distance between Jerusalem and Susa is 1,500 kilometers. I googled this the other day because that's what we do. And the modern city of Susa and the modern city of Jerusalem, uh, when, you, when, you, when you tap on the walk function, it would take you over 300 hours to walk between those two places. If you started walking and walked 10 hours a day, it would take you over a month to get from Jerusalem to Susa. It's not close. And, and Nehemiah's immediate circumstances are not bound up in the fate of Jerusalem. He's the cupbearer of the king. He is close to power and the, the greatest power on earth in this moment, the Persian Empire that stretched from Egypt north in, into southern Europe and Asia all the way into India, one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah could have avoided this if he wanted to. He could have denied it. He, he could have just turned away from his Jewish identity and his heritage if he wanted. And if the problem had bothered him enough, he didn't need to pray about it. Perhaps he would have had immediate angles of resource to look to. As the cupbearer to the king, he certainly had access to wine. He could have drowned his sorrows and lived in the moment. But Nehemiah didn't. He looked at the problem for what it was, and he allowed it to bother him. He didn't give in to distraction. He didn't turn his attention to something else. He didn't just throw himself into his duties or say, you know what, maybe I should just be Persian after all. He looked at the reality of his problems and he saw them for what they are. I just, I just want to pause there for a moment as we think about our situation. I, I, I tried to run through some of the connections I saw, the cultural problems around us at a civic level, spiritual challenge the church has faced, and you're probably well aware of problems in your own life. Let me just ask you how you respond to them. We live, I was arguing, in a gilded age. And if you choose to, you wouldn't have to really dwell on any of these things. It's not as if the, the threats and the challenges around us are so overbearing and oppressive you can't escape them. You can escape if you want. Isn't that right? I mean, in fact, you are offered every day so many opportunities to escape. The challenges we, we face as a church... You, you don't have to think about them if you don't want to. And perhaps for us, one of the greatest challenges of all is we can simply compromise on every point that's different. We can embrace our so-called Persian identity. We don't have to 
stay true to Jerusalem. When I say that, I'm saying that's the temptation before us. You have so many other ways to escape, don't you? So many other distractions. We think about the challenges and the neighborhoods and the communities that exist very close to us. We don't have to look at them if we don't want to. We were speaking again last night about some of the problems that are faced in Homewood and our intentional activities to try to work, to enter into the community, to care for the people and the children that live there. I go weekly to the master's kitchen to help serve food with Bethany Baptist. As you drive through the neighborhood, you see buildings that are abandoned and a reminder that the best years of that community are behind them. One of the realities that often hits me is to realize that on a regular basis, I really wouldn't ever have to go there if I didn't want to. I could simply drive by. How many of the neighborhoods that surround our city and in the small rust belt regions of our southwestern Pennsylvania area, how many of these places and problems can be simply avoided? Well, what does Nehemiah do with his grief? He doesn't stay in his grief. And he moves first to God. This is a take-home point we want to leave with us as we look at this passage today. What does Nehemiah do? Well, the passage tells us that Nehemiah prayed. It's not all that he's going to do. And I think sometimes when we hear prayer as a solution to these problems, there's a bit of a, a, a cynical voice in our head that says, well, that, you're just not doing anything. It, it's true. Sometimes we can say, I'll pray about it as a means of not doing anything. The, the book of James is a place where James very poignantly warns us that if we see a brother in need and we respond by saying nice words, be warm and well fed, but we don't do anything, we're acting in disobedience. But that's not how uh, Nehemiah is going to respond. In fact, as the book kicks into gear and as we anticipate things that are going to happen as we move forward, Nehemiah is going to be one of the busiest people in the Old Testament. He's going to be active. He's going to lead the people into response. They're going to build even as they have to defend themselves against hostile powers around us. In one scene, just a couple of chapters later, the people will be building in one hand and holding a weapon for defense with the other. They will be active. But Nehemiah does not look first to his own power. Instead, he looks to God. And in this prayer, he is, through the process of prayer, reoriented to the power of God to change his situation. That's what happens in his prayer. Nehemiah is not going to rely on his own strength. He's not going to rely on his own political connections. He's not going to rely on his own resources. But he's going to seek God, and he's going to seek God on God's terms. That's what we see when we look at his prayer. You know, this is a thing we could spend really hours looking at, but I, I want to give just a, a brief overview of the things that we see when we see Nehemiah praying. We see, first of all, that he looks to God as the God who has power. There's a Persian king on the throne. The greatest empire the world has ever seen, but when Nehemiah prays, he knows that he's praying to the God of heaven. 
He's praying to the, the God who rules. Verse 5, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. But he's also praying to a God who's made himself known. Throughout this prayer, Nehemiah refers to the language of covenant. Covenant tells us that God has come near. And, and so Nehemiah speaks with the most intimate of language. Oh God, let your ears hear. Would your eyes see? Nehemiah prays to a God who has revealed himself to his people, who wants to be known and, and wants us to trust him and depend on him for the things we can't do ourselves. This is the God that Nehemiah comes to. Not only is God near, not only is God big, but Nehemiah's prayer reminds him that he himself and his fathers have sinned. This is the part we would probably most like to avoid. But in Nehemiah's prayer, he confesses his sin and he recognizes that he's part of the problem. One of the reasons that prayer orient, reorients us to God is it shows us that we need God's power and that without his help, we are part of the problem. Confessing, uh, he confesses the sins of the people of Israel, even of his fathers. Nehemiah knows that the problems they're facing are not only his own problem, but the problem of those who have go, gone before him. He owns them honestly. And he addresses them. He owns these things against the backdrop of what God has revealed. Particularly, you'll see the many references to the commands of Moses. Nehemiah knows they have broken actual and specific commands. But herein lies his hope. Because Moses spoke not only of the penalties of covenant disobedience, but the promises of restoration. In verse 8, he turns to this hope and says, Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your art cast are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He's referring specifically to Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's holding the promises of God, saying, This is what you promised to do. He looks for God's power of redemption. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah knew that they were a people who had been redeemed, who had been bought back, who by the power of God's mercy and grace had been restored. This is a picture of the redemption that we see most fully in Jesus costly redemption where God buys his people back from exile and pours out his mercy and grace upon them. Finally, we see in Nehemiah's prayer that even the human powers are put into perspective. In closing, he prays for mercy and grace in the sight of this man. You notice those words at the end of verse 11, in the sight of this man. As Nehemiah unfolds and we turn the corner to the next chapter, we'll see the man he's speaking of is the king of Persia. He knows that though the powers around him are great, they are small in comparison to God. Let me close by asking you this today. Are you willing to look at the problems we face? 
without distraction? Are you willing to look at the problems that are present in the world around us? I'm convinced that the major problem with the church that we face as a whole in America is we're actually not troubled enough. We still, living in a time of the a Gilded Age, still have a, a semblance of power, a semblance of self-confidence. We're not nearly troubled enough. Because if we were, we would be praying more desperately. We would be seeking a power that lies outside ourselves. As, as a congregation, I, I know that we are beginning to do that more. More people are praying. We are aware there's redemption in Jesus and power in the Holy Spirit, power we don't have ourselves. But as we move through the book of Nehemiah, I think we'll see generally these two themes. A call for a concern that's broader and deeper than what we started with and a call that we would seek God, the God of heaven, and seek for his power to be poured out on us in the church and through the church into the world around us. Let's pray together.